Hi, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homebrew, a podcast dedicated to everything startup-related. My guest today is Dylan Lenz. Dylan is the co-founder and CEO of Neighborly, a credit bureau designed for more transparency between landlords and tenants. What's really incredible about Dylan is how much adversity he's overcome, and we're really excited to hear his story today. So I want to start off with how you grew up, because quite frankly, it's really inspiring. You didn't have the best of circumstances early on, and yet you've grown and sold two successful companies and are currently operating neighborly. It was part of the winter batch in 2018 at YC. You've raised tens of millions of dollars for the business. Tell us about how you got everything started. I mean, I'll start at the beginning, basically. like I was raised by a single mother on welfare until I was basically 18. Parents split when I was really young. I come from this place called Tofield, Alberta, which is basically the middle of nowhere, Canada. It's north of Edmonton, uh, a few hours outside of Edmonton. So like Tundra. You know, I moved 20 times before I was 18. I had a very interesting childhood filled with like, you know, tons of traumatic events. Ultimately, like money was always a thing, right? Like we were always worried about paying the rent or buying groceries. You know, we, we lived off of food banks at times. We had to move middle of the night at times because the landlord was coming for us kind of thing. And, you know, it created this sense of like survivalism in both myself and my sister that I think is uh, remarkable or just non-typical compared to most people's experience growing up in the West, uh, growing up in Canada or United States. In terms of the mindset. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, I grew up with entrepreneurial parents that were not that great at entrepreneurship. So I got to see them fail firsthand. Most notably, my stepdad and my mom started a real estate company in 2007, which ultimately fell apart by 2009. And, you know, I got to experience cars getting repossessed and, you know, us going from home ownership to renting, which along with a lot of other stuff that happened in my childhood, you know, just kind of amplified this decision of mine to like take more control over my own personal outcomes. So, you know, I fundamentally look at myself as being optimistic and deterministic. And I find that most people who are financially successful tend to be, they, they share that mindset of, you know, the future is going to be better than the past and that, that they have some aspect of control over it. And um, that I think is kind of like the crux of the mindset that's allowed me to take these risks. And so it's not like, you know, when I look back on like this path of entrepreneurship and and building businesses and starting things, it really wasn't an option in the sense of I've got like another lucrative job offer on the table. It's like I'm taking the best opportunity in front of me and basically swinging for the fences with it as much as I can. Let's also establish some context for how you started your career. So what were those first two businesses like and what did you learn from them? So like when I was a kid, I mean, my mom will tell you about my entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, you know, career, starting with me selling bugs when I was a four-year-old on the street corner uh, that I used to put in those little film canisters back when people still developed their photos and, uh, you know, I'd sell them to the neighbor kids and then lemonade stands. And then when I was in grade nine, I started a high school newspaper because my high school didn't have a newspaper. And so, you know, I, I went to university for a couple of years, went to UBC on a four-ride scholarship, and then 
I was also on the Canadian boxing team or I was on the provincial boxing team, supposed to be going to the Pan Am games representing Canada. And I tore my rotator cuff, shattered my clavicle and, uh, ended up ending this dream of like maybe becoming a prize fighter kind of thing. And, uh, I watched that movie, the social network. And I was like, I could do what those kids do. And then I Googled the fact that like I Googled valuations of different websites that I, I often use or different apps that I use. And at that time, Tumblr was worth like a hundred million dollars. And I was like, dude, I I'm studying computer science. I've been a developer for a while. I know exactly how to build a product like this. That's ridiculous. So I, you know, I started this first company um, called BookX, which is a book exchange platform for university students because everyone used to sell their books on Facebook at the end of the semester and they were limited to their initial uh, group of fellow students, the people they actually knew who were friends with them on Facebook. But if they went one degree further, suddenly they'd have like 90% of the campus. And so we built a product for that, then realized pretty quickly that everything was switching from physical textbooks to ebooks. And there was really no business model there. So we handed that over to the students' union, let them continue with it. And then I dropped out and I started a company called Cardmo, which was a business, business card sharing app on the iPhone 4. Again, we struggled with the business. We were before our time. This is like 2012. I was like 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And that failed really quickly. But I, ta- I had taken out all these student loans to like, you know, basically like fund myself and fund the business and ended up losing my scholarship because I wasn't hitting the grade target that I was supposed to hit to maintain that. And so I ended up dropping out and talking my way into a job at a big bank called Desjardins Group. We got my trading licenses and uh, started working on private wealth portfolios, doing insurance and financial planning and estate planning and stuff like that, um, which was, you know, a huge learning experience. And then left and decided to start another software company with my friend Will, which was focused on like remote networking and safety management tracking for oil and gas workers. And we got acquired a year in, which was fantastic. Our first customer was basically ready to buy us. And so we got acquired and then we ended up, uh, I took the money from that and bought up a series of struggling check cashing businesses and pawn shops, which was like a really weird career detour on the surface level. But the reality was I'd taken a year off and worked at this pawn business uh, when I was 17 between high school and college and ended up learning a ton. First day of, of work, my boss said to me, you'll learn more here in a year than you will in four years of business school. And that was absolutely the truth because I got to touch every single component. And I got to like work next to this guy who was actually a successful entrepreneur running a multi-million dollar pawn business. And you know, I got to see him like interact with his lawyers and different customers and stakeholders and you know all that kind of stuff. But I, I surrounded my, I guess my point with all of this is that like I, I surrounded myself with people or I was around people at an early enough age where it didn't seem so unrealistic that you could build your own business. And it didn't seem so unrealistic that you could actually like take something that nobody else was doing or in places where, you know, responsibility had been abdicated. You, you, there was an opportunity to like, go in and solve a problem and organize the world in a little bit of a better way. And when would you say that mindset started kicking in or was it always kind of that thought process when pursuing these ventures? Um, I mean, well, you're talking to somebody who is uh, legitimately and clinically diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum and also has like a good healthy case of OCD. So I've always kind of felt like I've had the ability to like organize things a little bit more efficiently. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a single point. I just think that like 
you know, my, so one of the things is like my mom, she made sure that we went to the good school, despite the fact that we were low income. So she would drive five miles every morning and make sure that me and my sister were surrounded by peers whose parents were doctors and lawyers and business owners. And that kind of put a chip on our shoulder because we were like, okay, we're smart enough to be in the same room as you guys. We're your peers, but simultaneously our lifestyle versus your lifestyle is very different. So that kind of put a chip on my shoulder, gave me an inferiority complex, a little bit of a superiority complex because I was a little cleverer than most of these kids. And I think those two things really like kind of pushed me towards uh, this outcome. You know, when I finished my first year of college, actually, I think that was like the big, that was the big turning point for me, probably, because I, you know, was, I had been so convinced up to that point that me going to university and pursuing a degree and, you know, becoming a lawyer, that was actually my plan when I was, you know, 16, 17, I was going to be a lawyer because I was on the debate team and stuff like that. I realized that like, that wasn't the path for me because I could learn more in the course of like two months in the summer than I did in the entire year because I was forced to kind of learn on somebody else's timeline. And it just seemed like a big waste of money. Uh, you know, I, I can't like pin it down. I, I think it's personality types. I think it's what you're exposed to. But I think nowadays too, that like there's a lot of people being, you know, just with different pieces of information being available on the internet, you know, the fact that being a startup entrepreneur or being an entrepreneur in general is kind of in vogue now compared to when I you know, was graduating high school in 2009, I think that's kind of shifted the overall cultural viewpoint on risk-taking. And this is a, a viable path for people. That's very true. I think it's kind of cool these days to be a founder or at least try that entrepreneurship path. A question I had was from an interview with Sam Altman. And how he talks about humans being very bad at calibrating short-term catastrophic risk with long-term chronic risk. An example of that could be starting a company, right? The short-term catastrophic risk is that it fails. The long-term chronic risk is you'll wonder what could have been. I mean, the wealthiest place on the planet is the graveyard. I really do believe that. So do you think that mindset is changing? And if so, why? Basically, there's a, there's a sure shot path to success in our culture, which is basically you go to school, you study hard, you go to a good college, you study hard, and you will get a degree. And then you will go get some work experience. And you'll probably flounder around a little bit unless you choose something that's very precise. And then you go and get a master's degree in something. And then you go get a good job at a consulting firm or a big company. And you suddenly get trained to be in the officer class. Like that's what a master's degree does. That's what a, frankly, like a business management degree or a business administration degree. And you go from being, uh, you know, just a, a pawn to being a knight. And then you get to work your way up. And that is not a complicated path. And that is not a very high risk path. Like as long as you've got the base level IQ to do it and the willingness to do the work and the finances to buy the education, you're going to probably end up making six figures by the time you're 35 in the United States and hopefully around that in Canada, uh, though Canada is kind of an interesting market. But um, it's a low-risk, mid-level reward. And I think that we're trained to do that because it's the safe path. I don't want to romanticize entrepreneurship too much because it's not as romantic as people seem to make it out to be. It's not the social network movie, and it is not really you getting to be your own boss with like 
no strings attached and you have like this massive amount of autonomy. I, I think fundamentally that like basically entrepreneurship is the way we knight people in this country, truly. You know, it's not getting your master's degree and going and working at Deloitte. It's going and starting something and taking that risk and trying to get like a band of misfits together to take something that should exist or doesn't exist, but you believe in to, to the masses, to the market. At the end of the day, like humans are still animals. We're, we're naked apes with consciousness. And, um, you know, in the most like irreverent sense of the term, but yeah, it's easy to go and talk to girls when you have a VP title at some mid-tier Fortune 500 company, right? You know, you're safe bet. And that's really what a lot of those people I think really look for is like, you know, what, what's going to satisfy their parents? What's going to give them a certain dimension of social status that basically ensures that they're not just, you know, blue collar workers. But, you know, the thing about being an entrepreneur is that like, you know, there's been times where I've introduced myself as basically self-employed. That's it. I'm self-employed, which is really code for I'm unemployed. Um, and that you don't earn that job as a, I mean, well, you do earn the job being a CEO at a startup company, but you don't earn it when you get it. You just basically like go out, print some business cards with a big title on it. But at the same time, you're 24 years old and you are completely unqualified to really consider yourself a CEO in the sense of the term that like, I think the majority of people view uh, what a CEO is, right? You know, I'm not the CEO of Clorox bleach. I'm not the CEO of, of the jelly belly corporation or Chevron or something like that, where I'm getting a $10 million a year pay package plus stock. You know, there, there's really not a lot of difference, uh, between starting being, you know, CEO of, of a software company in the early days and somebody starting a barbershop you know, It's entrepreneurship. And so you're just basically choosing a title. But the thing about that is that like, you know, going again to like the nobility of, of the act of entrepreneurship is that this is how we knight people in this country. And if you want to know how the nobles became noble, it's because they took it. You know, if you go back 500 years, 700 years, a thousand years, whatever, and whatever feuding clans were feuding, there was a group of people that basically decided, fuck it, I'm going to actually go out and take what I want and I'm going to make a name for myself. And suddenly they became earls or lords or, you know, whatever the, the structure was at that point. And that's what we're doing. Being a billionaire in this country, being a billionaire in the United States or Canada, being a super successful entrepreneur, you know, whether you get the, the billionaire title or not, like that is our path to the gentry. And the difference between you know, the society that we live in now and societies historically is that you actually can be nobody. You can be a college student and you can turn out to be Evan Spiegel. You can turn out to be Mark Zuckerberg. You can turn out to be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or whoever. I think that that's, I don't know, it's an interesting circumstance, but it's definitely the higher risk route. And, and it really comes down to like what your motivations are. And I think that that's also a big thing that like deters people or I think a lot of people go into becoming a startup founder, not really understanding what they're going into. You know, they, they over romanticize it or they under romanticize it, but they don't really understand what the hell it actually means. I mean, that's a very good point, too. I remember I was watching some startup school videos, and the thing most consistent about starting a startup with founders is how little they've thought of the problem relative to how much of it will expose itself over time. Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You know, I, I started this company when I was 24 years old, and I, and you know, brief overview of what Neighborly does, you know, we screen tenants. 
that's the core of what we do. Or that's what we started doing. And the problem we were solving was like a landlord's greatest fear is a bad tenant. And initially it was, how do we give landlords a better way to access and furnish credit data to the credit bureaus so that like people's rent payments became part of their credit history. And that if a tenant got evicted or a tenant you know, was a professional tenant in the case that I had run into as a young landlord, that they would be able to, to see that and that there's this like universal history of, of past tendencies. And as we dug into it, it became so much bigger because the problem is not about landlords and tenants. The problem is about systemic issues in the credit system that exists today. The, the issue that tenants have in terms of proving their credibility and that landlords have in terms of establishing a tenant's credibility really root from this FICO scoring system that was originated in the 1950s. And I had no idea when I was 24 that what I was really doing was starting a new credit bureau, which is what we're doing today, trying to build a credit bureau for the renting generation uh, because consumer behavior has massively shifted. And in turn, that consumer behavior is not being adequately reflected on a tenant's credit report. But I also think that, that that being naive early on is exactly what you need in order to start something. Because if you told me at 24 that I'm starting a credit bureau that's going to be competing with these five multi-billion dollar multinational corporations, and I was going to do it on a shoestring budget with a bunch of you know people in this little tiny walk-up office space that was, that frankly, is like literally the size of my office today. And we had eight people stuffed in there with Ikea desks. Um, I probably wouldn't have done it. It sounds crazy. And I think that like being blind to a certain extent early on is actually exactly what you need to be able to take those risks. One thing that really stuck with me from our last call was you telling your staff that their job is to fail as fast as possible every day so that they can learn, get better and move on. I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that's fundamentally what like the point of a startup is, is it's about learning, right? You're going in with a thesis. You're saying, Hey, here's the way that the world should be organized in some way better than it is today. Here's my viewpoint on how it should be organized or, you know, how this business process or how this user experience or whatever the hell it is should work. And you have a hypothesis and that hypothesis is going to then go out and face irrational actors. Because I think one of the problems that, if you look at like economics 101, everything is modeled. Economics is entirely modeled on the notion that like humans are rational actors. Economic actors are rational. And that's completely false. Anybody who's actually ever experienced like real human interactions, you're going to know immediately that like basically humans are the most irrational of actors and they don't know a damn thing. Um, And so with that, like you're, planning this thesis based on like, okay, here's like a perfect portrait of how the world should work. And then you have to go put it in front of real customers who are incredibly irrational. And then you have to navigate that. And so you end up basically just consistently testing your hypotheses. And me stealing from Paul Graham is that his viewpoint is that startups are about learning. And in so many other jobs outside of being in a startup company or an early stage product inside of a large company is that you're trying to do the best job and that there's already defined process for what the best job looks like. And that's not the case in a startup. In a startup, it's like, we're going to screw up every single day. We're going to make decisions and we're going to see if those decisions accurately reflect a positive outcome or not. And if they don't, that's okay. It's just don't like keep 
putting more money and effort or energy into things not working correctly. So like what I tell my staff is basically like, yeah, your job is to fail. Like, I want you to screw up. If you're not screwing up, if you're not like doing something and finding out that it doesn't work, you're probably not doing your job because things most of the time don't work. You know, smart uh, Jeff Bezos talks about this, where like when he hires people, he looks at how often they get things wrong. Um, smart people see more options than, than the average person, right? Like we're, we're better at divergent thinking. And as time goes on, and this is actually, I think one of the reasons that you see most startup founders tending to be younger and why you tend to see most innovation happening when people are younger, not just in startups, but like really across most dimensions, whether you're a mathematician or you're a startup founder trying to start a new company, or you're a musician, um, you see that most massive bodies of work occur when people are younger, like under the age of 30. And what we looked, you know, one of the things that I've looked at is uh, there was a study done about divergent thinking. And so if you're going to judge a human being on become, being a genius, quote unquote, a genius in the, the dimension of divergent thinking, go talk to any five-year-old and every five-year-old will be a genius because they have no concept of the real world and they have no concept of why things can't be done. You know, if you ask them like, I don't know, uh, take a paper clip and build a ladder out of a paper clip they will say things like, okay, well, cool. The paperclip is now a hundred feet tall and I'm going to like cut the paperclip into pieces and turn it into a 25 foot ladder. This is like a ridiculous conversation, by the way. But my point is, is that like, as time goes on, as we, as we continue to be socialized, we basically get nipped. You know, we're social animals like dogs, right? And the wolf pack will nip you into while you're playing, you know, will give you like a hard bite when you do something wrong. And all of a sudden it turns us into these kind of like factory workers who are all like clocking in, clocking out. And that indoctrination and that system of indoctrination, I think is what often holds people back from actually pursuing entrepreneurship or taking big risks. Yeah, for sure. And based on those comments, do you think everyone should try entrepreneurship? The parallel I always give is kids in sports. You know, parents sign up their kids for football, let's say, not because they think they're going to the NFL, although some might, but it's to learn things like teamwork, sportsmanship, respect, like things that are more intangible, but will nevertheless lead to the development of character and ultimately probably a better person. Do you agree with that? I don't think that everybody should be a founder, but I do think that like, you know, going and working at an early stage startup is probably some of the best work and business experience you'll ever experience in your life. Like I said, one of the cruxes for me as a business, a business professional, so to speak, you know, was, was working at this pawn shop next to an entrepreneur and seeing day in, day out, ups and downs in that business, having to deal with the basic level accounting, having to deal with day-to-day negotiations, having to deal with sales, marketing. You know, I got to see firsthand the real stuff that was going on. And when you go and work at a big corporation and you fill a small role amongst a thousand other employees, what you end up with is the experience of doing that role and developing a very, you know, honed skill set, which is essential in a complex information-based society, you know, a service-based economy. Um, you know, that's really what we need most people to do. But the question is like, do you want to just do that? Do you want to make an okay living? Do you want to have an okay outcome? Or do you want to have an exceptional outcome? Do you want to be a leader? And whether that means you're going to be a leader in the sense of being the owner, being the entrepreneur, being the CEO, whatever it is, 
or just being a really, really qualified VP of strategy at Deloitte or BlackRock or, you know, name any sort of Fortune 500 company or consulting firm or whatever. I don't. So the short answer is no, I don't think that everybody should be an entrepreneur. I think that it takes incredibly thick skin. My sister tried to be an entrepreneur um, and uh, she, she did her own startup uh, after I'd started Neighborly and it wrecked her. You know, it just, it was not what she enjoyed doing. And it was incredibly stressful because there were so many uncertainties that she was just really not equipped to deal with compared to me where like, you know, she, and she, her feedback to me is like, how are you so good at failing all the time and then not caring? Um, and the answer to that is simply like, because I fail all the time and I either win or I lose. But the reality of it is that like the outcome of me failing is nowhere near as catastrophic as I might think going into that thing. And I know that because I've tried it so many times. So like the worst case scenario for me, if I fail in this company is I go get a job for a quarter million dollars a year in the Bay Area. Well, I can still pay my mortgage with that. I can still pay my bills with that. And I can, you know, start planning to do the next thing. So I'm not worried about failure in, in that sense because I've built a reputation and a network for myself. But I don't think that people should be entrepreneurs just, you know, ad hoc. I, I think that it's too in vogue to a certain extent and that people, some people are just not made for it. And I think what they should do instead, but what I, and what I do fundamentally believe is that I think that like as many people as possible should try and work at a small business that is actively growing where they get to touch as many components of the business or see as many components of the business as possible. And so for everybody, it might not be like, you're going to go fund your own company or you're going to be a seed stage founder, take no salary for a year. That might not be ideal. And, and Paul Graham talks about this in one of his essays where he defines what he calls the drag coefficient, where there's these different attributes and different aspects of an individual's life that basically you add a single point for. And when you get over a certain number of points, you are no longer, you know, it, it kind of like he, he, he tears you out like, okay, you should go work at this kind of company or you should go and start your own or that sort of thing. And so, you know, if you're somebody who's 35 years old, two kids, who's married, who has a mortgage, who has student loan payments and really needs a salary, going and starting a company is probably not going to be the best thing for you to do because you can't go all in on it without putting at risk these fundamental aspects of your life and putting yourself under tremendous amounts of stress. That's kind of, the, you know, there's a, there's a balance there. And, but at the same time, like going and experiencing that, maybe going to a Series A funded company, maybe that's the right call. And then as you progress in your career and your confidence levels build and your network builds and all those kinds of things, going and becoming a seed stage founder who doesn't take a salary for six months, maybe that's a lot less risky than it, it was when you were 25 or 30 years old. 